Well, good morning, everyone. Great to see all of you. Welcome to Compassion and Justice 2015. And in the next three weeks, we're going to explore really a set of verses in the Old Testament book of Micah, chapter 6. We'll put it on the screen or if you can look in your Bibles. Uh, the prophet asks, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Yes, that was a requirement in the Old Testament. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousands of rivers of oil? That's kind of an exaggeration. Shall I give my firstborn for my sins and the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? That's what some religions would require. But, but Micah said, he's shown you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? What does God really want in this world? He wants us to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with him. And in the next three weeks, through videos, songs, testimonies, uh, we're going to kind of unpack that and find out what Jason was talking about, how we need to live an integrated mission. So give Jason a welcome for coming and joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, he's just one of the stories we're going to tell today. He's from Micah Challenge, and God's doing great things. It's kind of a movement that's going on with these guys. But he started out like every one of us, just, just an ordinary follower of Christ. And Jason, I, I asked you this in the first service, but we all have an entry point into where we realize, okay, I'm a disciple, and I've got to live that out every day. And your uh, parents are Egyptian. You're, they're immigrants. They came here, and did well for themselves in America, but it was your ethnicity that was the first step in your justice journey. Can you share some of that with us? Yeah, I um, I grew up in a very pretty normal way, um, but at the same time, I was deeply, deeply aware of how privileged my life was and that this was the anomaly, that um, my parents came to this country to visit and tasted freedom in state. Uh, they left an apartment full of clothes, full of dirty dishes and all this stuff because they had lived their whole lives experiencing oppression, experiencing dim- discrimination, fearing violence just because of who they were, because of their identity as Christians. And so I grew up really, really aware of that and wanting to do something about it. So we talk about burning bush experiences, right? And Maybe people out here think, okay, unless God shows me a burning bush, I'm not getting into the game. But what we learn is burning bush experiences are, or they happen in ordinary life, right? Like Moses one day was tending sheep, and he saw a bush that burned. I'm always amazed that he turned aside to see it. A lot of people walk right by burning bushes. Uh, your burning bush was very ordinary. Why don't you tell them what it was? Yeah, my burning bush experience would be that I finally picked up one of the 12 Bibles I owned. Um, <laughs> and read it, right? <laughs> and read it. And it was uh, in 2004, and I read it cover to cover, and I've been flying by the seat of my pants ever since. Yeah. Someone once told me every follower of Christ should read the Bible cover to cover every year. So you read the Bible, you start to see things about God's heart for justice and mercy, and the fact that you read the Bible is really cool for me because everywhere I go, and there's probably 50 to 100 people that will have this question today uh, because they're evangelical, um, wait a second, we're supposed to preach the gospel, we're supposed to go into all the world, uh, what you're talking about is the social gospel, so have at it. <laughs> um, 
I'll just say this, if the gospel that we preach isn't good news to the poor, if the gospel we preach doesn't proclaim freedom for the captives, and I'm quoting Jesus there, who was quoting the prophet um, Isaiah, if the gospel we preach doesn't turn the injustice of this world upside down, then it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Absolutely, the gospel brings us into right relationship with this loving Father. Absolutely, the gospel is this grace that covers our sin. But if it doesn't have an infection of God's goodness and kingdom for the world, then that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. By the way, you're allowed to clap in church, and I think that was worthy of a clap. <clears throat> so one of, the, one of the ways I learn, and I've been a lifelong learner, is I read. I know not, that's not everybody's way, but it's my way. And you share with me that you read a book called Justice and Peace Embrace, and that was like another step on your journey. Tell us about that book. Yeah, I read that book actually the year after I read the Bible. And it's an old book. It was written by a guy named Nicholas Waltersdorf, who's a philosopher and a theological scholar. It's really dense. So pick it up and like, you know, read it. Uh, after coffee or something, because it, it's, it's, it's heavy. Um, but anyway, that book really taught me that the things God had been teaching me weren't off base. Yeah, it really important. affirmed for me that this is God's message. And so the, the biggest thing I took away from that book was that we've translated the Bible wrong in that the word for that we translate is righteousness. So when Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. That always was like weird to me. That word dikaiosune really should be translated justice. And that makes a lot more sense because when you're fighting for justice, you will be persecuted for it. And so that, that was one learning from that book that moved uh, mountains for me. That's really cool. Um, so you lead the Micah Challenge. Why don't you explain to the folks what that is? Yeah, I'll be brief, and hopefully you'll come at 1 o'clock and you get to hear the full version. Um, but there's a seminar at 1, by the way. Yeah, 1 o'clock on the deck. To. Guys, go out and have a nice breakfast. Come back at 1 o'clock. It's free. It might be your first step in your justice experience, but go ahead. Uh, so Micah Challenge is a global movement of churches, individuals, organizations, families that are committed to advocating for an end to extreme poverty. And by doing so through living justly, through challenging unjust systems. So we do things like try to change a law in Benin so that the way doctors are paid for giving birth is changed to incentivize healthy birth rather than uh, surgery and unnecessary complications, which is how it was. We do things like audit government officials to expose corruption, um, to highlight that this place isn't poor because God didn't put immense amounts of resources and wealth here. It's poor because somebody made it that way. So we do a lot of different things and a lot of theological study and just prayer. Awesome. Yeah. So I hope you guys attend. We brought Jason out so you would uh, kind of get a fast learning curve to what living justly means. One o'clock up on the deck. Jason, thanks for coming. Appreciate it. Thanks. Jason's book is uh, out there also, Living Justly, and uh, all the books out there are the ones that I've read and recommend it um, to get you started on your journey. So 
Uh, you heard Jason's story, now you're going to hear my story. I don't know if anybody's ever heard my story. If you've been at Calvary a long time, you've probably walked the journey with me. But in 1983, I became a follower of Christ on a university campus, and my world was flipped upside down. Uh, my greatest fear is that, because you sit under my teaching, you think that uh, my journey to faith was intellectual. Like, I read the Bible and studied the resurrection, the life of Christ. I looked at evolution and creation, and I took all the facts, and I said, yes, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and I'm saved. It was completely opposite of that. I had never read the Bible I had never been in a church where they preached the gospel. Someone witnessed to me. I got saved. I knew three things. I was lost and I was found. The sky was bluer. The grass was greener. And I knew my life would never be the same. You know, God put a rocket ship on my back. And I knew I was being launched out for his glory. Um, at the time when I became a Christian, there was a pandemic in our world called the HIV AIDS virus. Now, if you weren't alive at that time or cognizant. Um, it was a scary time in America and really in most parts of the world. Uh, just for us to take a walk through memory lane, I went back and got a couple pictures that will help us remember what it was really like. Here's a group of men holding a banner that says, AIDS, we need research, not hysteria. And the reason they had that is because hysteria was the rule of the day, right? Look at the next slide. We thought we could get AIDS by you know, going to a restaurant and drinking in a glass someone else drank in, public restroom. There was even some people who thought if you were downwind of someone with AIDS, you could catch it. Now, the one thing we knew, look at the cover of um, Newsweek magazine, uh, we knew that gays were getting HIV, okay? And so we thought it was a gay disease until one of our heroes got it, Urban Magic Johnson, and he retired from the Lakers, and we knew, oh my gosh, maybe everybody's open season. So this was a really scary time in America, but a great time to be a young Christian because I had a front row seat in my church to see how church leaders would handle this. Again, I was curious and I was a learner. And so I began to sit in my church and uh, looking back some 20 or 30 years later, uh, and I'm not throwing anybody under the bus, but by any metric or any measure, the church was late to the party on HIV AIDS. Um, I can't remember a single relief effort our church did uh, to help anyone who was involved with AIDS, even though there were people like women and children who were infected unjustly, if, if that's a way you can talk about it. The common response in the church I attended, and in most evangelical churches, was fourfold. Number one, we said it was the judgment of God. These people got what they deserved. We use the text in Romans 1 where it talks about they burned in their lust for one another and they got the just penalty and said, this is the judgment of God. They sowed to the wind, they're reaping the whirlwind. Again, remember today, half of the people infected are women and children. Now, some of that may have been true. I'll leave that to God, but that was one of the responses. Another response was fear. Again, that hysteria. Uh, I remember church meetings where we were, not we, I mean, our church leaders were talking about, you know, who we would let in, what kind of people we let in, because they were going to use our bathrooms and things like that. You know, after all, this was our club, and we didn't want to get infected, right? I remember them, there were ads for this, selling communion cups that had the communion sealed and then the wafer sealed. So, so you would get your little individualized packet, and you wouldn't get infected, because maybe the person next to you had AIDS. The third response was, this has to be the end of the world, right? 
Israel's in the land. There's wars and rumors of wars. This is the pale horse rider in Revelation 3. Deadly infectious diseases. Jesus is coming. Again, I'm not saying he wasn't. I'm just saying this is the way it was. Um, and again, there was a lot of indifference. Maybe some churches were doing it, not the one I attended. Now, let's fast forward a decade later. My wife comes home from three days of high-octane, caffeine-infused seminar schedules and late-night pizza parties, which they call a youth workers' conference. And I'm home on a far-distant planet watching our four children aged 2 to 15, and I'm ready for my personal men's retreat. And she walks in and she says, look, I'm not going to dump the whole conference on you, but can you listen to this one tape, as in cassette tape, they used to put messages on those. And I said, okay, and uh, true confession, never listen to that tape. The message was by a young lawyer named Gary Halgan, who had quit his law practice in Washington, D.C. to start a fledgling ministry called IJM, the International Justice Mission. Gary had worked on the Rwanda genocide from Washington, D.C., and in his work with Rwanda, he discovered there were 25 million modern-day slaves in the world, most of them in sex or human trafficking. Now, it was called bonded labor, but they were really slaves. And um, just a fascinating discovery. Now, two years later, you know, I never listened to that tape. My wife comes to me and says, you know that tape you never listened to? Well, you like to read. Gary wrote a book. Read this book. It's the same message. So I took that book with all the other books people tell me I have to read, Put it on a stack, and true confession, I never read it. I'm a bad pastor, I know. Sometime later, I'm at a major Christian conference. And I look down on the list of speakers, and I notice Gary's one of the speakers at this conference. And i got to tell you, when he got up to speak, it was like one of these God-ordained moments, like one of these top five, I was in row 20, seat three moments. And my heart was pricked. He was genuine, he was authentic, um, he was gripped by the heart of God and the scriptures, and it was a very interesting time for me, because I was walking our church through a transition from a western mindset of missions, where, you know, you get your church's financial statement at the end of the year, and you see they gave hundreds of thousands of dollars, and you feel really good about that, right, your club did something good for the rest of the world, and again, I'm not throwing anybody under the bus, I'm not saying that's the right way to go, but um, we were transitioning out of that, and we said, you know, um, we've read enough, we've seen enough where we think God wants us to do integrated ministry, so we're going to choose foreign partners who are already doing a bang-up job, and we're going to, and we're going to come alongside them, we're not going to help them, because they already know what they're doing, and then uh, we're going to do that locally too, we're going to find people who are involved in the inner city with the poor and marginalized, and, and we're going to come alongside. We're not going to just write checks, although that's needed. We're going to get our hands dirty. We started First Step Compassion Weekend Initiatives, where we would take you to Chester and Kensington and Camden and get you to places maybe where you would never go on your own and let God kind of work on your heart. So as we were working through this, some of Gary's writings were really helping us frame up how we would do missions in the next generation of our church. Now here's the question I want to ask everyone. What changed in the 20 years where the church was late to the party with HIV AIDS and now was leading the cause in this thing called slavery 
or human trafficking. And by the way, we were leading the cause. Do you know when the world caught up on sex trafficking? When Liam Neeson went to France and blew up like the whole country in the movie Taken, right? All of a sudden people said, oh my gosh, there's sex trafficking. Well, the church was already out ahead of the cause. So what changed in the church so dramatically? Well, I think a few things changed. Number one, um, I think Christ followers started to look at church history. Now, a lot of people think church history is abysmal. It's only abysmal because we never knew who was the church and wasn't the church. You get what I'm saying? A lot of people who claim they were the church, like going over to kill Muslims with crosses, on they weren't Christians. They were just part of a system. But if you look at most church history, the church was always leading these causes. Always out in front on helping the poor and the marginalized. Um, people like Mother Teresa and so many other people helping the poor. Um, infectious diseases. Ab- abolition of slavery in England and the U.S. Rights for women and children. If you read church history, the church was always the leader in these causes. Second thing is we finally had a biblical framework. The Old Testament where we thought God was a God of judgment had verses like Micah 6-7. And a thousand verses where God loves the orphan, the fatherless, the stranger. God told his people, you were strangers in Egypt, so you need to treat strangers well. And that's interesting because immigration is going to be a big part of our uh, national election. But think of some of those verses. That has said the kindness, the loving kindness of God all through the Old Testament. And then Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the imprint of God. If you want to know God's heart, if you want to know the Old Testament, look at Jesus. He was the friend of sinners. He got his hands dirty. He wasn't part of the club. He would go to wherever people were hurting. Jesus said, it's not the well, but the sick who need a doctor. And he was their doctor. We had leaders like Gary Haugen and others who started to show us that the church could make a difference. And then really good, good books were starting to be written. Well, you know, books with well scholarship and research telling us that, you know, um, the church has to kind of realign its thinking in the Great Commission. Uh, one of the great books I recommend out there is When Helping Hurts. A lot of the money we dump in the world missions flat out does not work. I've talked to leaders there. It doesn't work. It goes into a great big black hole. So reading those books has helped us in our challenge. The next step in my journey is when I met Sarah Miller in the Bronx and Adam Bruckner in Northern Liberties. These are two people, you know, Sarah was a college graduate, Adam was a soccer player, who, like Jason, were gripped by reading the Bible of God's compassion for the poor and went to live in the inner city, like really live there and just meet with homeless people. I probably went to the Bronx seven times in one year and went down to Northern Liberties probably as many times, and just couldn't get over how God took these people and placed them there and the difference they were making. My next growth spurt happened when I went to Kenya two years ago. Now, I never wanted to go to Kenya, mainly because we were doing great work there. Over the 12-year span, we had sent over 100 different people to Kenya. We were doing lights-out work there, and every time they would ask me to go, I'd say, why in the world would I go? You guys are doing such a great job. And they're like, well, you really need to go to see what we've done. And if you don't go, people are going to start to think you're not behind it. So I thought, okay, I'll go. However, if I do go, I want to have coffee with this guy, Oscar Maru. 
Oscar is the pastor of Nairobi Chapel. He speaks at all the major conferences in the U.S., missionary conferences, leadership conferences. Pastor Shem is from Kenya, arranged the meeting with me. I thought I'd meet with Oscar, glean some knowledge from him, and never see the man again. I met him here in the States at a conference we were both attending, and then Oscar and his wife, B, came and spent an entire week at my home. Came to sizzling summer services, he came to Sunday morning. Uh, we've been dialoguing ever since. He'll be here next Sunday, and I need you all here. Because Oscar's a busy man, and our churches are partnering together in a way that I think is going to be amazing in the coming years. When Oscar sat with me in that coffee shop, he said, Bob, he goes, you're probably like most Westerners. 90% of Westerners come here and they run right to the slums for two reasons. One, you're compassionate with the love of God. And number two, you're guilty Americans. You're guilty about all the stuff you have, so you want to run to the slums and make a difference. Um, and he was right. On previous missions trips, we would go there and see kids with no shoes, and we'd try and line up and buy them all shoes, and buy them Cokes, and all this different stuff. Um, I'm not going to let the cat out on the bag of the rest of what Oscar had to say, because he's going to share it with you next week and how we're partnering to make change. I'll say this. Oscar looked me in the eye and said, Bob, Kenyans need to change Kenya. The church of Kenya can change Kenya. But we need partnership because you're good at stuff and we're good at stuff. He goes, you Americans, you're all about ready, aim, and you never fire. You're all about analytics. We need that. He goes, all we do is fire. We never analyze anything. So we'll have a great partnership. My final learning came when I had lunch with Andy Crouch. Andy wrote a book, Culture Making. Now, when I read a book, I can read a book in a day. Most books I read, I read in a day. But when I get a book like Culture Making by Andy Crouch, I slow down like a nice cup of tea. And I read a chapter a day because it's so well written and so thought-provoking. So I love this book so much. He's the editor of Christianity Today. And I found out he lived in Swarthmore. So I got a lunch with this guy. and We had a great conversation And at the end of the lunch, he hands me his latest book called Power. It wasn't even released yet. I begin to read this book, Power, and I was floored. He goes through the whole history of power. But the chapter I want to bring up today is this chapter he had on injustice perked up my interest. He was on a trip to India where he met with Jaka Kumar, who was the director of World Vision in India. Now, World Vision is... It's like a Compassion International. They give out over a billion dollars of aid around the world. And he begins to talk about this guy, Jaka Kamur, who began to share with him something he said changed his life. And it's very, very important. Jaka Kamur said, the poor are poor because someone else is trying to play God in their lives. Can I read that again? The poor are poor because someone else is trying to play God in their lives. Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. Why? Because God, someone's trying to play God in their lives. In a fallen world, someone's playing God in their lives. So we all know there's enough food in the world, right? We know America can feed the world. So why are there a billion people starving? Because somebody's playing God in their lives. Somebody's monkeying with distribution. And you'll find out next week in Kenya that is rampant. 
For Jaka Kamor, the root of poverty was not the lack or misdistribution uh, of money, nor was it the lack or misdistribution of power, the ability to make something of the world. Uh, of course, Jaka Kamor could be the first to say that both of these are real and pressing problems, but he saw them as symptoms of something much deeper and fundamental. Poverty and persistent injustice were signs that some person or group of people had played God in the life of another person or group of people. We found out in Kenya, when you're in the slums, they sell jeans there for a dollar, and you think, well, that's a deal, until you realize all that clothing was given. It was all relief effort. And then you find out that some political leaders in Kenya want to keep people in the slums because that's how they raise money and get Western aid. So, 2015, that's where I am in my journey. And my journey's not complete. I've got my own set of questions. God, what can I do? God, what can this church do? It seems overwhelming, but you're the God of justice. If you look on the walls here, we chose as our backdrop pictures of people. And the reason we uh, chose pictures of people is because it's people that are going to make a difference. If the church is the hope of the world, if the church is going to make things right, it's not our buildings that are going to do it, it's the rank and file, people, you and me. That we're all on this journey of being disciples and followers of Jesus Christ, and somewhere, somehow, God is going to make us part of the solution. I really believe that. Today you heard Gary Haugen's story. Just a young lawyer in D.C. who stepped out by faith and made a difference. You heard Jason Folletta's story. He read the Bible. Looked at his immigrant parents. Said, I can live a comfortable life or I can get on this justice train. You're my story. Young pastor trying to find his way. My wife's story loves teens and, you know, was impassionate for them. If you, uh, when you entered today, you probably saw under our canopy a big black structure. That's our justice experience. When we started Compassion Weekend, we would spend the weekends going to first step opportunities. And by the way, there's, there's some of those you can sign up for now. Where we took people to Chester, Camden, and the inner city because we realized they wouldn't go on their own. But if we could take them there, let God work on their hearts, they could see how they could make a difference. And then we would take Sunday, this day, and we would explore some avenue of injustice like extreme poverty or sex trafficking, clean drinking water, whatever. Well, my wife, when I wasn't listening to any of these messages, she said, well, forget about you and the bigger church. I'm going to start teaching teens about this. And she started educating a whole crew of kids in youth group for years. Well, she finally moved on from youth ministry, and Lisa Meredith came on the scene. And unbeknownst to me, like I work here, and I didn't even know this was going to happen. Unbeknownst to me, all this passion we had with kids who were now in their 20-somethings and still in youth group, they went bananas the week IJM came here. They printed t-shirts, they built the brothel, some of you might remember, that was out in our atrium. It was like a funeral after the service, people waiting in lines to go into this brothel. They built a brick kiln. That brothel and brick kiln has traveled this country Travels everywhere Gary Haugen speaks, goes to all the major conferences. I don't know how many people have been through it, but we have reports from churches where people were lined up, big mega churches in the South, for two hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
We've sent staff down to work at these churches. All because people stepped out. That was Lisa's story. But I want to end today with a story that's one of the most inspirational things I've ever seen as a Christian. It's by an ordinary man, very plain man, not brilliant, not smart. His name's Burl Kane. He's the warden at Angola Prison in Louisiana, one of the worst prisons in the United States. And if you're doubting one man can make a difference, and if you're doubting when God says what's in your hand, that he can't use what's in your hand, whether it's a pen, a paintbrush, a staff, a tool, then I think after Burl Kane's story, you'll realize God can use you. Because that's all he uses is ordinary people. So let's watch this video, and I'll come back with some closing remarks. You know, I'll be honest with you, every time we show that, I almost kind of look at the curtain because I'll be a bawling idiot up here after it's over. You think of Burl Kane said, he said the first time he heard God was in prison, a place he didn't want to go. You know, I think about our lives, right? So all through our lives, you know, there's times of doubt and discouragement. God, are you going to do this? God, are you going to do that? God, are you doing anything in the world? God's always doing something in the world. He was doing this and you didn't even know about it. He's always doing something in the world. But the way he does it is his eyes go to and fro throughout the land. And he looks for people who are willing. Not people that want to ready aim. He wants people that will fire. I realize that the curve we're up against here, even in our own church, had a guy after the service tell me, see, what he did in that prison, we should have done in this prison. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this guy still doesn't get it. It's not a program we're going to start. The program's going to start in the pew. Chuck Smith said this years ago. God grips your heart, you step out, then we'll get behind it. How many Burl Keynes are in here? How many Gary Halgans? And again, it's not about being famous or on a video. It's about every day getting up, putting the fuel in your tank, reading the Bible, and realizing everywhere you go, you have a chance to show mercy and kindness. Everywhere you go. Because believe it or not, those inmates, Burl Cain, he was, that was the first time they saw Jesus. We live in a world where people aren't reading the Bible. There's more atheists now than there have ever been. They're reading our lives. And it's the world we're going in. So I want to encourage you in this three weeks. Get alone with God. Pray. I want you to have a burning bush experience where you say, God, this is the reason I was put on the planet. This is my purpose. My purpose is to eat, drink, and be merry, and be safe on my cul-de-sac. We're all going to die. Every one of us. Being safe is not God's plan. You will find purpose when you step out and do what God's called you to do. I look at this video, and I want to get on a plane right now and go hug every guy. Every single one of them means more to me than going to the new stadium in Dallas or some great event. The redemption of God never gets old. By grace, we were saved, every single one of us. And the story never gets old. But we are plan A. And there is no plan B. Government's not going to do this. No one's going to do it. This is, this is who we are. And God wants us to fire. So I'm going to pray for us. God, we have three weeks to let this seep into our spirits. Lord, this is just the opening day, just to kind of 
stepping into the waters. Lord, I pray for Oscar and Gary Haugen as they come. Lord, that we would hear your voice. That we would see possibilities. That you would make us a city set on a hill, Lord. That we would get involved in initiatives and causes that would lift the human spirit. We thank you, Jesus, for our salvation. We pray that it would overflow to every man, woman, and child in this region. And that you would give us a peace of redemption in the world. Because you are a loving God, full of grace and mercy and truth. And so I pray for all of us, every one of us, to give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen.